Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode was recorded about four hours before Shamima Begum had her British citizenship revoked. The ensuing conversation between Dolly and I happened earlier in the day on Tuesday. Welcome to episode 86 of The Hilo, the weekly popular culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. This is the week the Labour Party divided because of its anti-Semitism problem, the week that everyone discovered Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson's Instagram page (laughs) where he's constantly posting stories like he's an influencer, and my personal highlight This is the week some footage went viral of an American community theatre production of a Princess Diana musical, and it's one of the best things and some of the best wigs I've ever, ever seen. Where can I see that? So I've actually found out that you can watch the the performance in full on YouTube. (laughs) But it was, I tweeted it, it was some, it was a, I think a TV producer, a comedian found it. He must have been researching. I went onto his profile and it said he worked in TV. And I think it just reminded me of the years that you spend in TV development where you have to go Googling and researching stuff for days and days on end. So he must have just found it by chance. And he tweeted some... Is it an old one? Uh, I don't know. It's very sort of grainy footage. (laughs) It's so (laughs) I still live really near the Princess Diana Cafe on Notting Hill Gate. Oh my God, I didn't even know that existed. It's just covered in pictures of Princess Diana, the whole thing. Wow. Also this week, 15,000 school children from around the UK marched against climate change on Friday, carrying placards that read, there is no planet B, you can see what they did there, as part of a global movement known as Schools for Climate Action, which began in Sweden in September. I love them, and I love that slogan. (laughs) I agree, activism from a young age for a planet they will be living on longer than us. And Jenna Coleman went viral with a Guardian interview where she was asked by the magazine what her most embarrassing moment was. And she replied, buying a sandwich at Leeds train station. The man said to me, do you want to go for a drink? And I said, I'm so sorry, I've got a boyfriend. And he replied, no, it's a meal deal. If you take a sandwich, you can get a drink as well. (laughs) That reminds me of when a man stopped me when I was about 21, I think, and in the full flush of my youthful arrogance and I just went no sorry as if kind of briskly cutting off any potential romance and he said um I just wanted to tell you that your skirt was tucked into your knickers (laughs) this was also fashion week can you tell us about that Pandora Well, on that front, two icons died this week, both at the age of 85 years old. Lee Radziwill, sister of Jackie Kennedy, and Karl Lagerfeld has just died. When did Karl Lagerfeld die? Breaking news for you, Dolly. Uh, I read it just before you walked in. Oh, no. What happened to his kitty? (laughs) I'm sure Choupette will be fine. She'll have a will, for sure. Peter has already released a hilarious statement that landed in my inbox. 
Karl Lagerfeld has gone, and his passing marks the end of an era when fur and exotic skins were seen as covetable. Peter sends condolences to our nemesis's loved ones. Oh my god, Peter. <sighs> to our nemesis's loved ones. I love the work that Peter do, but they really don't help themselves sometimes. That arrives within about a minute. Message to send. <laughs> How was Dublin? Dublin was amazing. Want to move to Dublin? Another moderate. I did see tweets about potatoes. <laughs> a man threw a packet of potatoes on the crisps in the same way that maybe Mick Jagger used to have knickers thrown at him. Just went straight at my calf. Packet of salt and vinegar. Would you rather those than boxes or knickers? Uh, I'd prefer the crisps. Yeah, I thought you would. Uh, no, you had a great time. It was my first time in Dublin and I just loved it so much. It's such a beautiful city. I've never been. Oh my God, it's gorgeous. We had so much fun. We had such a fun weekend. Performative Guinness drinking. Did a lot of performative Guinness drinking. And on the Saturday night, my friend Roisin Ingle, who I talk about on the podcast quite a lot, she's a columnist for the Irish Times and she's got a great podcast. She had Lauren and I to her house and she had a bunch of mates come over and we had the most delicious dinner. Then we stayed up in her garden until 3am singing and playing guitar and playing piano. It was so fun. Night before a show, well, yeah. Yeah, felt a little bit ropey the day of the show, but it was worth it. In the mailbag this week, we had lots of emails from listeners on the subject of smear tests, including one from a nurse who said that smear tests are in decline and believes if we have more positive, destigmatizing conversations around the experience, more women will go for their tests. I can't believe this. I'm really sad about this. I genuinely thought post-Jade Goody and her tragic death from um, cervical cancer that there had been a surge maybe there was and now it's dipped back down or again. it might be just her personal experience in her yes, practice or in that's her true. area but you know it still is always important just to reinforce not only how life-saving they are but also just as we as we mentioned last week how really not a big deal the physical act of it is especially not if it's going to save mm. your life mm. In less important news, we got plenty of emails on the co-op's salt and vinegar crisps with lots of fans saying they're so glad. Sorry, they're not fans of the show, just to be clear. I'm not referring to you as fans. I'm referring to the fans of the crisps. Lots of fans saying that they were so glad we've discovered the saltiest and most vinegariest uh, crisps on earth and other fans of the crisps saying that we shouldn't have let the secret out um, and they were really a bit upset about it, actually. Uh, but I've been enjoying them in abundance. Sabrina and I actually, before we went out for our Valentine's Day dinner, went into a co-op on the way to the restaurant <laughs> and bought a packet for a starter. Uh, we also got an email from one listener who said she ate so many in one sitting that it gave her a mouth ulcer. I know where she's coming from, actually, because I ate some flaming hot Cheetos on Friday night after my friend's birthday party. And, hold on, so today is the first day four days on mm. that my mouth has not been in agony I almost booked an appointment with the dentist because I thought I had maybe permanently inflamed my gums mm. I couldn't eat anything acidic for four days that's a good use of our National Health Service what is in I didn't book the appointment but what is in those crisps to strip <sighs> do you know what I would do it every time I'd do flaming it flaming hot cheetos I would do it all for love again Don't. and again no no not the spiral ones honestly those are dangerous the pickled onion monster munch and pickled onion we disposed onions, of the rest of them like a hazard Oh no, I really want some now. You want to try something that's going to strip your gums? I don't mind the taste. I love that level of taste. Darling, I was in like actual agony. It felt like my mouth was full of glass. 
Maybe I'm, roma- no maybe I'm romanticizing it. There's no teaching it. some people. And after last week's love sausage, we got tipped off about another frankly vile food stuff, the finger grape. Ooh. You might have already come across this strange species of fruit, wrote our Hilo listener, but I've included a rather disturbing photo underneath in case you haven't. Despite their uncanny resemblance to baby fingers, they are apparently sweet and succulent and not at all fleshy. I forwarded that picture to some key contacts of mine and they were all <laughs> similarly repulsed. <laughs> key contacts. My sisters and my husband. <laughs> we also received an email about a brilliant new mentorship programme that connects mid-career women with refugees for mentoring. They're currently looking for mentors and I thought some of our listeners might be interested Roots is the name of the mental program and it began in 2017 as a direct response to the additional barriers that women who are refugees or asylum seekers face when accessing support. Roots states, far too many opportunities and services are inaccessible to women because they do not take into account childcare responsibilities, are not trauma informed or fail to consider other gender related barriers. We believe women deserve better and we are determined to design our services to be accessible to as many women as possible. I couldn't agree more. So if that's something that you'd like to get involved in, uh, we will include the website link in the show notes where you can find out more and potentially sign up. I had an Instagram message from someone who said that she and her friends loved the sentiment but hated the name of Galentines and Palentines and so had renamed it amongst their friendship group as Vagentines. I can see the sex toy companies drafting next year's press releases as we speak. Pandora, what have you been enjoying this week? I have been dipping into The Sisterhood by Daisy Buchanan, which is out on the 7th of March. Um, Daisy has a whopping five sisters. And if you have one or multiple sisters, as I do, I think you'll really enjoy spotting bits of your own sister or your behaviour as a Mm. sister. And she really charmingly evokes the kind of specific um, sentiment of wanting to, like, murder your sister, but also being more protective of them than anyone else in the world. It's really funny and lovely. And it's also, it's... it's. I don't have a sister and I love it because it's also about how what she's learnt from her sisters has informed the way that she treats women in the greater world. So it's just about the kind of metaphorical sisterhood as well as her real-life sisterhood. And I really enjoyed an essay that I read in the Paris Review, which I recently subscribed to, um, and which I really recommend as a present for the bookworms in your life if you can't think what to get someone for a birthday or Christmas, as you also get a gorgeous quarterly book each quarter, funnily enough, what with it being quarterly, and you also have access to all of their digital archives, which I think has like 50 years worth of um, essays. And the latest book I got, it's number 227. It's a mix of fiction, interviews, poetry, non-fiction and document. And in this book was a non-fiction essay by Leslie Jameson titled I Met Fear on a Hill, which is about her mother's marriages, her three marriages, notably the one that existed before she, Leslie, was born. Her mother reveals that her first husband wrote a novel heavily based on their marriage. And so Leslie gets in touch with her mother's first husband, Peter, who she says has played a small benevolent role on the fringes of her life. And he sends her the novel as like a sheaf of papers. And um, I think you'd really enjoy it. I'm just going to read this one bit I thought was really lovely. 
Trying to write about my mother is like staring at the sun. It feels like language could only tarnish this thing she has given my whole life, this love. For years I've resisted writing about her. Great relationships make for bad stories. Expression naturally gravitates towards difficulty. Narrative demands friction. And my mum and I live by the day, the week, the decade in closeness. Besides, I'm no fool. Who wants to hear too much about someone else's functional parental relationships anyway? A friend once told me that it was frankly a little bit exhausting to hear me talk about how much I loved my mother. Julie noted, I'm her baby hagiographer. But what can I say? She saved me over and over again. My hunger for her feels endless. I want to love her more fully by loving the woman she once was. Perhaps it's a way back into the womb, past the womb, seeking these stories of her from before I was born. I love that. Yeah, That's you'll really, beautiful. really love it. Um, so that is a brilliant essay. And I think if you subscribe to the Paris Review, you can read that online as well as getting I'm it. I subscribe. I love the you Paris Review's writing. And lots of um, the authors that we love, like Sally Rooney, mm. um, write essays yeah. for the Paris Review. Um, so I really want to just see which of my favourite authors have written mm. essays that I haven't managed to read. I went to see A Star Is Born alone on Valentine's Day as well. Was that fun? Yes, I had no idea of the sad twist. How? Oh, no, don't tell me the sad twist. Have you not seen A Star no. Is Born? You haven't seen A Star Is Born? No. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, my God. I may not have a baby Pandora, but I do have a life. This is going <laughs> to... Twat. This is going to be your new Mary Poppins. Is it? I can't believe you haven't seen India it. India tried to make me learn You're one of the songs like, on guitar. Drama queenie, <laughs> queen queen. <laughs> Did Lady, you like it? Lady Gaga's incredible. Can I ask one question about the cinema? Was there 99 people <laughs> in the in the seats? I was just one. And you were just one. So, sorry, joke aside, what was it like? You enjoyed it? Yeah, brilliant. Really, really brilliant. Good um, soundtrack? Yeah, wonderful soundtrack. Can't believe Bradley Cooper directed it and was in it. He was very good. She was excellent, though. Um, and I did read, obviously, there's always a cynical thing that said that... So her fiancé is a really, you know, big dog manager at CAA, um, which is a massive film agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and he looks after all sorts of celebrities. And a lot of people were like, this has been masterminded by them to put her kind of in the, in Hollywood's gaze. And she's obviously mm. now up for an Oscar. Um, and if it was masterminded by them, they did a very good job. So, well done. <laughs> That's so interesting. That kind of mirrors the original plot of a story. Yeah. Film. Yeah. It's very meta. Yeah. Um, I also watched Roma on Netflix. Desperate to watch this. Oh, God, it's beautiful. CJ, have you watched Roma? Ooh, CJ's you watched too, everything at least three times. busy watching Fire Festival. <laughs> again and again, again and again. And again. Um, apparently, by the way, guys, he is doing another festival. Jarul. Not Bitly, he's obviously away. Jarul is doing... And people will go. People will go. Anyway, Roma, uh, the black and white film leaving Hollywood all of a chatter because it's racked up 10 Oscar nominations despite making precisely zero pounds at the box office because it is on Netflix. Alfonso Cuaron's film set in Mexico in the 1970s would be the first foreign picture to ever win Best Picture at the Oscars. No way! So it'd be a real, really seismic moment for geopolitics, I think, as well, and the kind of shifting linguistic tectonic plates, because it's, you know, finally challenging the idea that English is the established language for media and entertainment and all things important. It's also the most beautifully shot film. I can't really describe filmmaking, Dolly, you'd be a lot better at this than me but it's really sensationally shot in this like really wide 
panorama and this kind of continuous circularity. So it it this roving camera manages to take the entire top floor of the house in in one continuous shot wow. and you see into the kind of respective bedrooms of every single member of the family and it just it pans the whole way around. It's just this amazing really clever um, filmmaking. Some people have said not much happens about the film, which just really reminds and reinforces something that the novelist Meg Wallitzer said to us when she came on the high-low about the dismissal of the domestic, because plenty happens in the life of this family and their maids, but it's because it's almost entirely based on the home front and centres on the life of a young maid called Cleo, based on Alfonso Cuaron's childhood babysitter. He told The Hollywood Reporter, and I thought this was a really insightful acknowledgement and it made a lovely film. When you grow with someone you love, you don't discuss their identity. So for this film, I forced myself to see as this woman, a member of the lower classes from the indigenous population. This gave me a point of view I had never had before. And it isn't done in a patronising way. It's really beautiful and you learn a lot about the young maid Cleo's life, both her interior and anterior life, as a diligent and well-loved maid at home, as part of the family, but of course as part of the family and also as very much not part of the family, and a young woman outside of their home discovering sex and food um, and the world. And it's very sad at times, but I think it's an ultimately uplifting movie Mm. and I recommend it a lot. But if you ask me which should win the Oscar between that and A Star Is Born... Really? Did you really like A Star Is Born that much? It's really fucking good. I'm surprised by that. Because you haven't seen it. I would have been surprised by it before I'd seen it. I didn't want to see that. I want to see the favourite, but couldn't find it. Another quick note on Roma. For fans of Laura Marling, she's released a song that I think is part of the Roma soundtrack. Cool. Or inspired, a soundtrack inspired by Roma that I think has just been released that I was listening to last night. It's beautiful. Oh, lovely. I love her music. I've listened to it for a long time. Seamus O'Reilly wrote a very funny piece for The Guardian where for an entire week he replied to all of his emails using only Gmail smart replies. It will be no surprise to you that I regularly use those. (laughs) You know those ones that linger under an email trying to be helpful and that end in an exclamation point. And he said that it really upset him because it's a very funny piece. Please read it. I am very much just, you know, summarising a tiny bit of it. But he said that it really upset him that no one noticed these really bland replies. I do them to you all the time. Or the fact that they were ending in an exclamation point. (laughs) And he said, you know, why is no one questioning that I seem to be in this state of mild hysteria? (laughs) That's great when someone says, like, is it okay if you do the... Do you you not use them? No. I I, I literally send them. them. I send them to everyone. Sounds great. Okay, we'll get back to you. They remind me of, you know, the Nokia 3210 templates? Yeah. Happy birthday. I'm on a bus. I'm in a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I can't believe you use them. That's that's so depressing. I use them less with you than anyone else. Oh, don't try and backtrack. (laughs) With you, it's real. (laughs) I fake it with everyone else. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) You'll really like this um, piece. Yeah, I put it on my Instagram story. So if you would like to, I think it's, I think it is interesting because you and I talk all the time. We do all of us. I think we spend too much time. Oh on God, email. Dolly and I have really the last week, haven't we? We've. But I think it's hel- I think it's actually hindering us societally like, as a collective psyche. I think we discuss things too much. There's too much fussing now. I think we really email. <laughs> 
<laughs> email has taken the onus and autonomy away from our own thought and actions. But I agree with that, yeah. So often when I get an email or a text, I then call someone and say, can we quickly chat about it? Because yeah. we have 10 things back and forth. Every time I call you, Dahlia Anderton, <laughs> you text me back and go, are you okay, darling? <laughs> And there starts no, just the messages and the no, things. you're right. So pick up your fruiting phone but or I'm going to start auto-replying <laughs> when you come and see me. Um, but I, you I'm and I... program Zadie. You and I, our email's even our most efficient one. There's normally laced with a little bit of... There's a little bit of zhuzh there. I'm talking about the endless emails back and forth of like... Yeah, 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 I know, I know. Where I just feel like we just discuss the logistics of things. I just feel like it's making us all collectively very nervous and desperately needing everything to be discussed at length and I just don't think just follow your instincts more do you know what I mean no I think just use the phone more maybe that's just true just use the phone more and the last thing I really enjoyed this week is a poem in the Guardian review called Black Marilyn by Teresa Lola and I just wanted to read it out so I hadn't heard of um, Teresa's work before and oh, I absolutely love it this is from her book from In Search of Equilibrium. In Lagos, a photograph of Marilyn Monroe watches me in my hotel room as I scrub my body, like it's a house preparing for an estate agent's visit. I think Marilyn wants to say something to me, the way her mouth is always open, like a cheating husband's zipper. My mind carries more weapons than all war-torn countries combined. Every day I survive is worth a medal or two. I celebrate by buying more clothes than I can afford. I must be rich, my void is always building, a bigger room to accommodate new things. Today I woke up surprised I was still alive. Last thing I remember was my body, swinging from a ceiling of inadequacies. In my head I have died in so many ways. I must be a god the way I keep resurrecting, into prettier caskets. Marilyn's photographer, Lawrence Schiller, said Marilyn was afraid that she was nothing more than her beauty. You can call me arrogant, call me Black Marilyn, come celebrate with me. I am so beautiful, death can't take its eyes off me. That's very profound. It's beautiful, isn't it? I also just find it so interesting that we're now in a time, Eva Wiseman's written a piece on Marilyn Monroe, Sarah Pascoe's talked about Marilyn Monroe, and I think she talked about how they think she suffered from endometriosis. Debunking the, the kind of Marilyn Monroe sex symbolism celebration and how that minimised her, and looking at the fragility and the pain beneath that woman... Yeah, the Norma Jean Baker behind the meme. But, I mean, not to be facetious or anything, but on The Greatest Dancer, there was... You're obsessed with this programme. So it's wonderful. There was a dance group, the um, Dane Bates Collective, who um, played kind of Marilyn Monroe... There was a Marilyn Monroe at the centre and then the other dancers played the paparazzi around her. And I actually had to say it was an incredibly affecting piece of dance because the dancer that played her had that light, you know, that light up her mm. face, kind of massive, beautiful smile. Mm. And then seeing her life portrayed in dance and the way she was pushed and pulled, and yeah. it was actually really moving. So, yes, The Greatest Dancer is a really good program. Do you know, do you know where there is a, a similar routine? And I would say, like, that sort of dance routine... I feel like you're about to say something. No, 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 with news reporters and a beautiful woman at, in the middle, and it's not that affecting, but I do think you should watch it, is this grainy footage of Princess Diana the musical. Oh, OK. <laughs> All right, I'll give that a chance. It's that definitely not moving. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> what have you been enjoying this week? When I was in 
Dublin and I went to Roisin's house. She introduced me to some amazing Irish women um, who I have now befriended, whether they like it or not. And um, I've read up and watched their work. Um, and there are two things that I would like to talk about. The first is a TED talk with the human rights lawyer, Simon George, and her partner, the explorer, Mark Pollock. It begins with both of them telling the story um, of a kind of traditional love story of how they met and their subsequent, you know, forming of a friendship and falling in love. And she talks about when she met Mark, he had lost his sight a few years previously and she taught him how to dance because she'd spent some time in Spain learning uh, how to salsa dance. So it begins with this kind of very romantic, joyful story. And then shortly into their new relationship, he had an accident that left him paralysed. So they were in this strange place of it being a kind of burgeoning new relationship, but being confronted with this extraordinary trauma. And their TED Talk is about the notion of hope and acceptance and the details of their kind of subsequent mission to research every corner of science in every corner of the world in their mission to help find a cure for paralysis. And it is one of, I think it is the most moving TED Talk I've ever watched. And they speak with such clarity on such a difficult, traumatic thing. And the thing that I find so moving, which is the message of it, is that through this mission to understand more about the potential cures for paralysis and this kind of pursuit of a glimmer of hope she says that their love story that just began with two people dancing together has become this enormous love story of the love that she has felt from people from the Christopher Reeves board the scientists that she has met they've dedicated their life to creating research like she said science is love because all they want is for the this research to be in the lives and homes of people and it's just beautiful and you will be weeping by the end so I'm so so glad that I've met Simon and I'm so glad that um I've seen her TED talk I also met Rosita Boland who was named journalist of the year last year for an astonishing investigative story that she wrote about last year on Anne Lovett some of the listeners might remember we briefly talked about Anne Lovett in the run-up to the Irish repeal last year. I'm ashamed to say it's not a story I was familiar with until very, very recently. For anyone who doesn't know the story, Anne Lovett was a 15-year-old girl who died in tragic circumstances in 1984, giving birth alone in the cold next to a religious grotto at a time when it was shameful for a woman to be pregnant outside of marriage and her baby son died at the same time. The story is one of the saddest in Ireland's history and became more prominent last year in the lead-up to the repeal in Ireland and uh, wider discussions of reproductive rights. For for a very long time, the story, from what I can gather um, from reading Rosita's story and speaking to Irish people, was shrouded in secrecy and kind of a sense of shame And there was a thought that everyone seemed to know about Anne Lovett and the shame that was on her, but no one knew about who got her pregnant. Mm. For Rosita's story, she went back to the town where Anne Lovett had grown up and where she died. And for the first time ever, she spoke with the man who was her boyfriend at the time. And he has never, ever spoken before. It's a really moving and 
incredibly affecting piece of investigative reporting and I really want people to read it who haven't read it so I'm not going to talk about the revelations that come out of that piece but suffice to say it's I was incredibly shocked and moved by the things that I learned about while reading her discussions with him as I say I'm sure that there are lots of our listeners who are already aware of Rosita's piece but I and I know that I am kind of late to it but the story will never not be relevant or important so I urge everyone to go read it I also have been loving a book called Daisy Jones and the Six, which is a book by Taylor Jenkins Reid and is the story of a fictitious band called The Six and a protagonist musician, Daisy Jones, which starts in the late 60s and takes you all the way to the late 70s. And it ends with explaining um, the breakup of the band, which has always been um, an enigma to the fans. And it's kind of, it's told in this amazing way that's, that's like an oral history. So it's like you're reading the, the transcript of a documentary. That's the entire story, which is, I think a lot, I think more, more serious musos might find it kind of cliched and a bit cheesy. I love it. And it has such a kind of fast pace to it. And I obviously just love that, you know, California in the 70s in the music industry. I couldn't think of a setting that I'd love to read about more. And it's glamorous and exciting. And it's just like such a fun book. I can't remember the last time I read a novel that was so fun. So I highly recommend that. Is that a new book? Yeah, I think it's new. And I think it's like, it's... I'm trying to work out as I'm reading it who all these musicians are meant to be. And Do you think they to, are all loosely based? Yeah, there's like some Fleetwood Mackie stuff going through there. But, but weirdly, actually, I was reading the back, the, the blurbs for it, and I think it was either Edith Bowman or Reese Witherspoon has endorsed it. They said, when you're reading it, because it feels Quite so... I know. Because it feels so real, and the way that it's documented is with such hyper-reality. So when they transcribe what all the people involved in this band's journey when they transcribe it, it's like that it's like these people have spoken so it's very easy half halfway through to think that you're in the middle of a piece of non-fiction which means it's you know incredibly vivid and persuasive writing um but it also examines how when there are so many people involved with one story particularly with a band and with a creative journey how differing all their varying accounts are of their kind of rise and fall Speaking of Reese Witherspoon, you know she's bought the film rights to normal people. Has she? She is on fire, Reese yeah. Witherspoon. She's clearly, like, the good at the production side. God, that's interesting. I know. I sort of can't see how that will... Yeah. Anyway, I wonder how normal wait. people's gone down in America. Clearly well. Yeah. Or she's very perceptive and she's buying it before it hits has it hit the US market I think it has of course it has because there's been that hilariously pretentious long read in the New Yorker Yorker. yeah oh how exciting support for the Hilo comes from my long held favourites the luxury professional hair care brand Kerastase that isn't empty hyperbole. My hair was dry and frazzled thanks to years of hair colouring and straightening and I was constantly dousing it in serum. And then I discovered Kerastase in my early 20s and their masks honestly changed my hair's life. Happily for me, there's a whole new raft of products to let my hair live its best life. Blonde Absolute is a new in-salon and at-home hair care range dedicated to blonde hair. 
as Pandora alludes to, when you have ahem, natural blonde hair like us, there are two essentials, repair to prevent dryness and tone neutralisation to prevent brassiness. With Blonde Absolute, there is no need to compromise. It removes unwanted brassiness while strengthening and hydrating the hair, leaving it feeling soft and looking shiny. That is no mean feat when you colour your hair. This customisable hair care range cares for all types of blondes, from sun-kissed highlights to balayage to all-over icy white tones. God, I love the word balayage. So do I. Visit kerastars.co.uk for exclusive offers to celebrate the launch of new Blonde Absolute, available for a limited time only. Thank you very much to our hair's friend for life, Kerastars. Another week, another load of allegations made by women against a man in a position of influence and power. This time, however, the story feels a little different, and the conversation that has followed feels like a new one, and one we were desperate to have. The New York Times published a piece that covered a number of accusations from women of alleged emotional and verbal abuse against the singer-songwriter Brian Adams. Seven women and more than a dozen associates of Adams have spoken of his manipulative behaviour towards young women. A recurring motif is that he would promise success to young female musicians, dangle it in front of them in return for sex and then take it away when it pleased him. The story also included allegations of a young female fan who said she had an online relationship with the singer. Uh, She never met him in real life when she was 15 and 16, which included graphic texting and a video call in which Adams exposed himself during phone sex. He is also alleged to have written to her, I never see pics of you anymore. If people knew, they would say I was like R. Kelly lol. The singer and actor Mandy Moore, Adam's ex-wife, also told the newspaper he was psychologically abusive and that his emotional abuse over their six-year relationship stunted any kind of musical productivity from her during her 20s, the most fruitful time for a female artist, she said, and therefore hugely impacted her entire career. I actually listened to Mandy Moore on WTF with Mark Maron last night. and Is I, that a new one? Yeah, it came out yesterday, and I think that they recorded it... Well, they definitely recorded it before these allegations went public because they don't specifically refer to it. But Mandy Moore is incredibly open in the interview and she talks at length at what a prison she was in in her marriage. And something she said, which rings true with what you just said, is she she said she was so stunted artistically and so... Well, she didn't release an album, did she, for 10 years? No, and she was with him for seven years and she said... She she speaks quite like a bit obliquely, but not that obliquely about the fact that he took so much from her and demanded so much from her and undermined her so much that she didn't have. She said a friend said to her at one point in her marriage, "You are never ever going to have the career that you want, and you are never going to be able to be the creative the person you want, you want to be and the woman you want to be while you're tethered to this man." And she said, six months after they got divorced, she landed. This is us. It's wonderful in that. Mm. God. After the article was published, Ryan Adams tweeted to say, The picture that this article paints is upsettingly inaccurate. He added, Some of its details are misrepresented, some are exaggerated, some are outright false. I would never have inappropriate interactions with someone I thought was underage, period. I am not a perfect man and I've made many mistakes. To anyone I have ever hurt, however unintentionally, I apologise deeply and unreservedly. The end of uh, some of its details are represented, some are exaggerated, some are outright false, could be, but most of these are absolutely true. 
<laughs> There's been some brilliant journalism on this by writers such as Laura Snapes and Anna Leskovich, amongst many others, and of course some not-so-brilliant journalism where the old great art cannot be made by Paragons of Virtue case is wheeled out. Laura Snapes is The Guardian's deputy music editor, and she wrote a piece called The Ryan Adams Allegations Are the Tip of an Indie Music Iceberg, which goes into her experience of manipulation and power abuse having been so close to the music industry for a decade. She discusses how important it is that we abandon the tortured male genius stereotype that allows men to abuse their power. She writes, The concept of male genius insulates against all manner of sin. Bad behaviour can be blamed on his prerequisite troubled past. His trademark sensitivity offers plausible deniability when he is accused of less than sensitive behaviour. His complexity underpins his so-called genius. She also goes on to write that while men are often excused for such behaviour, female geniuses are dismissed as divas, their art depicted as a symptom of disorder, their responses to mistreatment and calls for respect characterised as proof of an irrational nature. The Telegraph's music critic Neil McCormick wrote the piece titled If We Expect Our Artists to Be Paragons, We'll Be Very Disappointed. He writes, women in the music business have certainly been undervalued, undermined and underpromoted. Adams' alleged behaviour, currying sexual favours in exchange for taking an interest in promoting women's careers, is almost certainly as rife in music as it is in every walk of life. But the New York Times piece doesn't accuse him of sexual crimes, just general creepiness. I don't want to defend a jerk just because he's a talented jerk, but if having sleazy relationships with musical admirers is a career-wrecking crime, I suspect they're going to have to lock up half the rock and pop stars who ever stepped onto a stage. Maybe Adams deserves to have his wings clipped, but do we really expect our artists to be paragons? Because if we do, we are not just going to be very disappointed, we are going to be stuck with a lot of mediocre art. I'd say that's a pretty good defence of a talented jerk. I really hate that response. It's fucking dull. Why not let's just try? And then if they do make really terrible, mediocre art, we can rest assured that they aren't that good anyway if they rely on Mm. so many vehicles in order which to make said art. And that maybe there are some people who don't need to do that that could fill the void with their hysteria and all. I spoke to Laura Snapes last night about the allegations, her brilliant piece, its various reactions... And the idea of breaking this insidious stereotype of the tortured male genius and his pain. You know, a lot of women uh, have I found it very familiar, what I've written about in it, but it's kind of been heartening to see men saying it as well. I mean, I think one of my favourite responses, partially because I was a teenage fan, but also because I thought it was very self-examining, was um, this guy called Carlos Sengler, who used to be the bassist in Interpol. And he talked about how his band had completely benefited from this like mythology of male genius and that that was one of the reasons that he wanted to quit the band. I think he must have left about 10 years ago. But kind of seeing that self-examination gave me like a fraction of hope. How much do you believe his behaviour could hide in a degree of plain sight because of that kind of romanticised, beta male, floppy head storytelling around his music and his personal brand? Um, I mean, it's hard to, for me to precisely speak to like the mechanisms that allowed it to happen, but I was listening to the New York Times podcast today, and they talk about how his um, previous manager, who's a very powerful music manager, stopped working with him about eight months ago. So there must have been you know, perhaps some kind of reckoning then. But then equally, he's still working with a very powerful woman now, who um, the New York Times people were saying that a big part of her her personal brand is kind of, you know, advocacy and um, advocacy for women and social progressiveness. So it's really hard to talk about the specific mechanisms that have propped him up, especially because he is, by all effects, independent. He has his own label. But yeah, obviously, there are 
two decades probably of him being this like high profile romanticized figure a man who has kind of made it okay for men to get in touch with their feelings I suppose and perhaps that's part of it as well. How deep-rooted do you believe this stereotype of the tortured male genius goes? How hard is this going to be to unlearn? I mean, I think it's like, it's older than rock and roll. It's like, you know, it goes back to like Byron and there were probably, you know, little Greek fops, you know, in the like BC era flouncing around doing this kind of thing. I think it's completely wired into what idea, what our idea of culture is. And to unwire it, I think it's going to be really hard. I think, you know... If we're lucky, <laughs> this can sound really callous, but once a few generations have died off, there'll be people who are slightly less wedded to this concept. But, you know, there are rockists being born every day who believe that, you know, because there was a weird argument about this if we're thinking about music. I almost think of it as like the kind of would you kill baby Hitler thought experiment. People start saying, well, Bowie was accused of this kind of thing. Led Zeppelin were accused of this kind of thing. Are you saying you would have wanted to censor their great art? And it's like, no, nobody's talking about, you know, revisionist history and going back and, and undoing all of that work. But I think, you know, the best way to think about it is not, are we, you know, what are we losing by removing creeps from power? It's what is all the artwork that we've lost by creeps having power in the first place? If you read the Ryan Adams piece, and also this was endemic to the Harvey Weinstein um, coverage as well with alleged victims of his. Um, people are saying that in the Ryan Adams story, there are two women who say, after my quote-unquote mentorship with him, I never wanted to make music again. It's the same with Harvey Weinstein. And you just think about all of the women who have been dissuaded or have lost, dissuaded by, you know, being actively victimized or they've been, you know, dissuaded by that culture of male genius that doesn't make any room for them. Um, I think it's much more important to think about it in terms of what we what we have lost historically than, you know, what we could stand to lose now. Because to be honest with you, you can still listen to Ryan Adams all you want still on Spotify. One of the things you talk about in the piece is the gender double standard of this supposed human fallibility. Can you tell me more about that? Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, even if you, somebody like Joni Mitchell now, you know, up until her late 70s period, we kind of regard all of that catalogue as absolute canon. But even if you look back at the reviews from the time that she was making it, you know, something like Hitting the Summer Lawns gets dismissed for being pretentious and having ideas above its station. And absolutely nobody was saying that about, you know, like the big male prog rockers of the time or whatever. It's such a poor reading of humanity anyway. Like every single person, like even like the Pope is flawed. Flaws do not mean anything as literal as, you know, allegedly grooming girls on the internet. Everybody is flawed and has this darkness. And I think that is kind of potentially the wellspring of art history. And to conflate that with, you know, actual wrongdoing and try and excuse it because it might be in the service of great art, I think is awful. And, you know, these, these male figures can get away with they get away with anything. They can get away with bullying. They can see this bullying being romanticized. I grew up reading NME at a time when Jack White was pun- punching up Jason Von Bondi and NME was printing pictures of his, like, bloodied knuckles. Like it was, you know, like a pinup. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, the minute a woman is seen to step out of line, you know, she dismisses a diva and undermined. We only have to look at, you know, those two Whitney Houston documentaries from last year. They made that point. Anything you read about Mariah Carey makes that point. You know, this perfect illustration of the Mariah Carey thing last year. There was one interview which kind of went in just asking her to comment on all of the rumours about how she behaved, you know, whether she asked for a hundred white kittens in a dressing room and, you know, M&M's and all the orange ones picked out or whatever. And she's hostile in it because you would be hostile if you were forced to defend, like, a ridiculous caricature of yourself. Mm. And then there was an interview with her in Pitchfork which actually took her seriously as a songwriter and a producer and an artist. And it was one of the best interviews, probably the best interview that's ever been done with her Mm. because it treats her as a human, like a talented human being who's in charge of her own art. 
so some people have said like, oh, you know, Ryan Adams has had terrible problems. He's had addiction, this, that, and the other in his background. That may be true, but to suggest that the way that he has allegedly treated women is the product of those experiences does an enormous disservice to anybody else who survived addiction and whatever else he's gone through and managed to come through it without grooming children on the internet, allegedly. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so all of these conflations make me sick. And I thought that Telegraph piece was completely shameful. This is an incredibly big question to ask and one that is the least important in this conversation, but still an important one in these journeys of reckoning. What do we do with the work of men such as Ryan Adams? I think it's up to people to make that decision for themselves. After my piece came out, when I woke up on Friday morning, I had hundreds of men being like, oh, what am I supposed to do? I love his music so much with the best one in the world, I don't care. It's a personal decision as to whether you can still listen to that music and, you know, how much your relationship between the art and the artist impinges on your personal experience of listening to it and, you know, the emotional experiences of that music might have soundtracked for you. You know, obviously in some cases like, you know, the man from Lost Profits who was uh, jailed for the attempted mm. rape of a baby, mm. you know, I completely support retailers and Spotify and stuff. And his band said, we want all of this removed from sale. We do not want any more profit to come from this music. You know, that's an absolute extreme. But I think in cases like this, you know, it's, it's funny because one of the things that the critic uh, Anna Leskovich from The New Statesman, um, I quoted this in my piece, but she wrote this about um, Johnny Depp and that ridiculous GQ cover a few months ago. She said, you know, while men get to go to the south of France and idolise Johnny Depp because he's got a typewriter, women have been doing the hard, boring work of killing our idols forever. And I think that kind of most of the people that ask this question, or certainly in my experience over the past week, are blokes who feel weird about it and they feel like they're being made to be complicit. Um, because they still might want to listen to Ryan Adams. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to them I say, welcome to the club. Women have had to deal forever with being presented. Women and people of colour and all kinds of minorities have had to deal forever with mainstream art and culture being things that don't make room for them or even belittle them, and they have to negotiate how they feel about listening to those things. And so, like, male Ryan Adams fans, welcome to the club. Really revelatory about the guy from Interpol. I like how he wrote to Laura. I mean, that does show at least that she, women, female journalists, women in the industry, women in general, are not working in total isolation. Side note, I do like how you talk about his floppy haired brand I'm not being um, I'm not meaning to reduce anything here but I think the floppy hair chubby plaid shirt indie thing actually really helps yeah well it is that beta male thing of, of I've certainly encountered that that kind of little bit hopeless little bit sensitive little bit yeah disguised misogyny and it is disguised very very well there are so many things Laura said in our brief chat that really made me think the fact that in no non-creative industry is it so accepted that so many people could be hurt by one man just as collateral damage on the divine route to the creation of his art and the completion of the job at hand? Imagine if this level of abuse or manipulation or threat to young women was as historical and systemic and quietly a part of, like, working in property. It's insane. Well, you may joke, but I have female friends who work in property and that is not without its own misogyny. They all have stories of male bosses who have made it hard for them to do their jobs. I, I think It's ubiquitous everywhere. I think due to the blurred lines of the personal and the professional in the creative industries, whereas in property it's sort of devoid of charisma in the workplace and therefore personal and professional is quite... A lot of angry people from Foxton's. Well, well it's, there's quite a clear divide between... Yes. Yeah. Church and state, i.e., home and yeah. 
the workplace and that is obviously a much more of a blurred line in art and the creative industries but as you said it's ubiquitous there's this idea that a powerful manipulative man holds the keys to your success that's omnipresent in property litigation management consultancy all those jobs that Dolly Alderton you would absolutely not want to hold it's it's ubiquitous there too it is ingrained in the fibres of society not just the creative industries this whole conversation made me think so so much because in truth, I think I have in the past erred more on the Neil McCormick, well, great pain makes great art side of things, which is a selfish stance because what you're saying when you say that is you prioritise and legitimise an enjoyment of music made by men who openly treated women terribly over the life, well-being and often ultimate destiny or ruination of the women who were mistreated. I was thinking in the in the wake of the allegations and reading commentary around it about Marianne Faithful all this week in her memoir, which I read a couple of years ago and I think I talked about on the podcast. It's such a good memoir. Um, and I was thinking that, you know, that is a woman that was like a unicorn to Mick Jagger. He took her magic and totally used her up as his muse. And she was a woman who ended up homeless on the streets of Soho in the, in the same handful of years where she had been given this excessive glamour and wealth and power and kind of brief credence as a musician that was then taken away from her. I know the story of Marianne Faithful in full. I know what happened to her. I know how her association with that band and much of their treatment of her and their management's treatment of her led to, in many ways, a quite sad life. And yet, I still am so romantic about the relationship between her and Mick as artist and muse and I'm still so much more attached to the songs about her than any of their other songs. There are two things that really annoy me with the art debate. One is the idea that you have to be fucked up or dysfunctional or a horrible egotistical maniac to make brilliant things that others will enjoy and the other is that said art must be highfalutin and if it's not then it should be dismissed I was reading a piece in the review that actually is where I found Black Marilyn by Teresa Lola. So it was a wider discussion of poetry and new poets. The review, by the way, is a small magazine that comes with The Observer and I cannot recommend it more highly. It does brilliant and bountiful analysis of books, music, films, poetry. It's it's absolutely one of my favourite things. Anyway, this piece is about snobbery in art and specifically snobbery in poetry and it spoke of a poet, Rebecca Watts, who refused to review an anthology of poetry by Holly McNish called Plum because she felt like the honesty and accessibility of McNish's poetry meant that the craft was being, quote-unquote, denigrated and rejected. And it's the same charge which is levelled at Rupi Kaur, who is um, hugely popular and has sold over two million copies of her poetry anthology, who's dismissed as an insta-poet. And in here, there's lots of people saying that what she does is too accessible and therefore is, like, a betrayal to the craft. So... Both of those arguments really annoy me, and they actually stem from the same place, which is that, like, there's a certain level of agony, you know, if it's not either torturous to make or torturous to read. Inaccessible, exactly. Then it's no fun. Well, she just say fuck fuck off to that. Laura's. That's what I say, Dolly. Fuck off. Laura goes into that in her piece as well when she talks about the fact that Ryan Adams, you know, in the music industry, he's well known. He's, you know, like a musician. To be honest, I used to always mix him up with Brian Adams. I think um, people are just spelling it wrong. But he 
you know, he's not a mainstream, massive commercial artist. And she goes into that weird, she thinks it's gendered as well, that kind of um, snobbery around um, stuff being inaccessible. Because at the end, the piece that she writes ends with this brilliant paragraph where she lists all the examples of of subtle and much more brazen misogyny um, within the music scene. And she says it's telling that Taylor Swift, what's that big album that she did that everyone likes, 1989? Yeah, I think so, yeah. That so many serious publications refused to review that album. Until Ryan And then Ryan Adams did a track-by-track cover of it. And then everyone... Because this, like, really successful pop record that fucking millions and millions and millions of people had loved by, like you know, a young, poppy, peppy, blonde woman had done well. He then added this layer of indie boy, tragic, tragic, complicated magic over it. And then suddenly he is taking kind of all the critical credit for her original work. I sort of hated myself for asking Laura about what we now do with the work of these men, because I know... I'm very aware it's the least important thing in these conversations. But it is something that has to be addressed. And I actually do think that the fear of what happens to this music on a personal level to respective listeners and fans is perhaps the thing that stops us from fully confronting the truth of their behaviour and subsequent appropriate reprimanding. I think you're absolutely right to wonder that I don't think it's realistic to say that everyone has to eschew all work of someone problematic and it also puts the onus on the fan or the consumer the passive enjoyer of the art which doesn't feel very fair because you know they're not complicit in any of it they haven't done anything wrong um and they haven't done anything wrong if they still enjoy their favorite song that being said ever since the accusations about R. Kelly began to flow I have not been able to enjoy high or lifted in the same way that is a very, very meta and funny and subtle little in-joke for long-time listeners. For anyone else, don't worry about it. Um, on this subject, the thing that Laura said that I that I keep thinking about is how perhaps we shouldn't dwell on all the music that we may lose because of this or that may not be made if men such as Ryan Adams were reprimanded earlier on and not allowed to create you know album after album after album but instead we should think about all the music we could gain from women who were too damaged or dissuaded to continue making music by men who abused their power an example of this is um beverly martin my my favorite singer in the whole world who i bore on about all the time is a man called john martin and i think he is one of the main reasons that historically i've had a bit of a cowardly approach to to kind of the tortured genius thing um because john martin commonly it was known that he abused both mentally and physically his wife beverly martin she was a folk musician herself she was actually far more well known than he was when they first met in her memoir sweet honesty she talked about his jealousy of her career and his possessiveness and his undermining that meant that she good as abandoned her music career when she married him and had a family together and i spent all last night i'm going to spend all the rest of this week listening to the music that she made the scant music she was allowed to make and thinking about the parallel universe in which she could have been carried on making music perhaps for all her life not an important point but my knowledge of music is so ropey that i was about to ask you what genre scant music was (laughs) i love you (laughs) 
I mean, this is a really common trope in literature as well. There are so many male authors whose work was written by their wives or at least hugely contributed to by their wives. And, you know, they weren't given like a co-author credit. Nabokov, who wrote Lolita, Wordsworth, both apparently heavily relied on their wives to type up all their ideas and offer um, a lot of editorial support. Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code, was apparently helped a lot by his wife, Blythe, who was given no credit. Dick Francis, however, openly credits his wife, though not a name on his books. The famous French author Colette, before she became a really famous author in her own right, was would be locked in her attic by her ex-husband, and he only let her out when she had completed a certain amount of pages for his um, series that he wrote called Claudine. God, that's extraordinary. I know, I never knew that. And I, but, quite satisfyingly, I've never heard of Henry Gautier-Villars, but I have heard of Colette, so she won. And even when, it is, when it's not even that literal, when it's, when it's the case of how Mandy Moore describes being married to Ryan Adams, when it's the sheer emotional labour that it takes to support and nurture a man with this level of supposed tortured and tragic genius, I mean... Yeah, you think over and over again about how how many of those women have been behind so many of those tortured artists who we worship. As Laura says, the myth of the genius in pain is one that is deep-rooted and will take a long time to untangle. But it feels like this is finally a time where people want to untangle it. We don't want our music to be created at the expense of women's well-being or their pursuit of their own art. All of us carry pain and complications. Most of us find a way of that not being expressed through abuse in the name of just getting our best work done. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Undoubtedly, the biggest news story of this week is the return of Shamima Begum, a 19-year-old British citizen who fled from Bethnal Green in London to Syria to join the Islamic State with two friends, both of whom have since died, aged 15, and returned last week to have her baby, her third child, who was born a few days ago. It goes without saying that this is a loaded topic. Um, conversation centres on whether she should be allowed to stay in the UK, whether or not she has committed a crime as the wife of a jihadi, and if she should be prosecuted. It's also hard to know if she is still under the influence of Daesh. Home Secretary Sajid Javid has said that he would not hesitate to prevent the return of UK ISIS recruits, but extremist expert Hanif Kadir said that Javid's hardline stance would backfire and could potentially welcome a second wave of ISIS coming. The connecting up and reloading of ISIS fence-sitters more sympathetic to another kind of narrative. He said with the right counselling and the necessary security protocols, she could be successfully rehabilitated. There are some complex and contradictory strands to this. Initially, I thought, like, my knee-jerk reaction was, she's only 19, of course she should be allowed to come back, and we should support her rehabilitation. Teenagers make mistakes, especially vulnerable teenagers. All she did is marry a bad man. And then I thought, hold on, this idea that young women do not know their own minds is really anti-feminist and it was an idea further explored by Janice Turner 
in her column for the Times, where she said that young women can be as devout and radical as young men, and it's patronising to think otherwise. Must a young woman, especially a brown Muslim one, always be deemed a limp, submissive victim, she wrote. That outlook is both sexist and racist, and it, it works mm. both ways, I think it's, it's worth remembering. As you say, it's such a complicated issue because we have to be able to examine clearly the state of vulnerability these young people could be in and the degree of manipulation that could be at play. But there is also a very patronising and misogynistic overtone to ignoring the free will of these young women. Marie Leconte expressed it for me perfectly on Twitter. She wrote, I find the issue of young people who joined ISIS as teenagers and now want to come back very complex, to be honest. I'm not sure where I stand on it. I'm amazed so many of you have confidently picked a side once and for all. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, it is a tale of contradictory strands. I, I'm, I do a lot of like, on the one hand, on the other hand, I've been reading a lot about it, which has um, really helped me, to be honest, because I think you know, what on earth can we know about a situation like this? So in that instance, with a news story like that, I do always go and read essentially a shitload about it and what sort of interviews. There are some deeply troubling questions about consent, which is something else they covered on Women's Hour. Shamima was pregnant three times in the four years she was out there. Um, so comparing her to, say, a male member of Hitler Youth is not really comparative because that man is not being constantly impregnated. That said, we do have this really rigid notion of what the perfect victim looks like. It's something we saw with Chloe Ayling when she was kidnapped. I know it's not the same thing. I'm not comparing the situations, but they tap into that same notion of victimhood and the idea of both Shamima and Chloe said comments afterwards that made people doubt the veracity or the kind of um, purity of their intention or, or the experience they had had and both women had come out of kind of deeply traumatic shocking situations not conflating them mm-hmm. do not tweet me and tell me that they're not the same stories I know they're not in absolutely every aspect but they do both competently and complexly challenge what we see to be a young female victim and another issue that has come up a lot is the coverage of Shamima and the surrounding dialogue that we accept that a 15 year old can be groomed for sex in the case of the Rotherham schoolgirls, but we cannot accept that a 15 year old can fall online for grooming by Daesh. Is it not possible? I think that sh- there could be a failure of safeguarding both from the community in which she fled and the community in which she joined and that she was radicalised with, if not total, then partial agency. You know, can both mm. of those things not be true? Danny Dyer said on Good Morning Britain, (laughs) bear with me, what has happened in her life for Syria to feel like the answer? Emma Gatton, who is the Telegraph's foreign editor, tweeted in response to the Evening Standards headline, Danny Dyer shares his own view on Isis Bride. And Emma just wrote, are we done now? (laughs) Which really made me laugh. I haven't actually watched the interview and I can't believe I'm about to say the following sentence, but I do think Danny Dyer's got a very good point there. CJ said he was kind of put on the spot. He hadn't come on Good Morning Britain to share his thoughts on Shamima. Oh, I didn't Reagan. know that. I thought he was well, literally. I was on. watching it live, <laughs> and I can tell you, unlike all these people watching tiny little excerpts on Twitter, that was not the um, that was not the context. So he God, um, it just shows, doesn't it, that because the way going, that it's shown on Twitter yeah. is that he had taken it upon himself to go on to Good Morning Britain as a he hadn't CJ had he. No. No, no. He was... What was he there promoting? God, Diamond, I can't remember. And they just sprung it on him. It's like, in yeah. today's news. Yeah. I mean, it's quite funny. A lot of these sound bites coming from him at the moment. Do you remember um, David Cameron and his trotters up? 
<laughs> but I think that's like quite a coherent and yeah, totally. compassionate like response to being asked about something he probably has like most of us very little understanding of absolutely I do think with this question of agency it's important to challenge the idea that Shamima was just a housewife um, because again that extends that that misogynistic view that women who um, maintain a pastoral and familial life for a man aren't part of any kind of larger conversation or yeah. any part of making that man who he is she she wasn't completely passive she she joined a movement this whole idea of women not playing a central role in in conflict in terrorist conflict is a misnomer um several people have written and said uh, written about this and said that um women in ice women in the islamic state are not you know completely removed from what's going on um and they're not out fighting but they're still involved in terrorist acts they still play a vital role on the on the home front as the mothers of the cubs of the caliphate as they're called and janice turner writes they are given privileges and of course shamima's comments that she was unmoved seeing beheadings, that people, quote-unquote, should feel sympathy for me, have concerned people because they do not sound like words of repentance. She has since, of course, given other interviews, and people say stupid things under stress and shock. The Times journalist Anthony Lloyd, who found Shamima in the refugee camp, which is how she came to end up back in the UK, told GQ, and the piece went up today, Tuesday, yes, she has made some crass statements. She's in shock. She is in grief. She has just come off the battlefield. Her reaction, I thought this was really interesting because it reminds us of the girl mm, that before. she was raised as. Her reaction reminded me of a typical London's girl defence mechanism, actually. So that idea of fronting. You have to hold this contradictory of opposing set of truths in one's mind, he says. She is also a schoolgirl who was lured away and now, four years ago, she is an indoctrinated bride. But she is someone who has considerably more doubt and reserve over Islamic State than people are willing to listen to here. He also said that it's important we keep this in perspective. Shamima is just a girl he found in a camp. Just one girl. That said, as he acknowledges, this is about much more than Shamima because she represents a tinderbox of issues. Quentin Somerville, the BBC's Middle Eastern correspondent, interviewed Shamima on Monday and agrees that she is a contradiction of opposing truths and has been clear in documenting everything he was presented with when meeting her and the contradictions between everything she said. She does not want to become a poster girl for the Islamic State. She apologised to Britain for joining ISIS and is ready to face prison if she is allowed to return. She also said that she still has sympathy for the group, that she knew what she was doing when she joined and she was capable of making her own decisions. She says she would let her baby son become an Islamic State fighter, but now wants her son to be British. Yeah, so it's a tale of two halves. She's mm-hmm. obviously deeply confused and conflicted herself. Um you could hope that with this kind of honesty, it means that ulterior motives are not lying beneath, that she's being quite open about the um, process uh, and the various kind of psychological pullings mm. in inside of her. One of the best things I read was Keenan Malik writing for his column in The Observer. He said, and I think this is very true, that redemption is central to humane society. If we can rehabilitate paedophiles, should Shamima not be given a chance to be rehabilitated? He also said, and I think this is very interesting for its implications in a wider context, you know, for human rights, than just the case of Shamima, that Sajid Javid washing his hands of citizens that have done wrong is ethically grotesque. 
because it forces other nations to take responsibility for them if we wash our hands of citizens that we you know, no longer want. Um, but that the responsibility goes both ways. If Britain cannot discard its responsibility for Begum, neither can Begum evade responsibility for her actions. I think that obviously that's true, that redemption is essential to a humane society. And I think the very strange place we're in now is examining this woman's current state to work out if she is capable of redemption. But being so embedded in an organisation as extreme and violent and ISIS for so long makes that just such a difficult thing to assess. You only have to watch that interview with Quentin Somerville to see how complicated that is. And I think as well, it's not hardline to remember that a lot of these people who have been incredibly nervous about Shamima coming back and would, you know, agree with Sajid Javid that they really don't think that she or anyone else that has joined ISIS should be allowed back because they are remembering the Manchester bombings or other terrorist attacks. It's absolutely terrifying to consider that we could bring someone back into the country um, who might end up facilitating another terror plot. Like, put baldly, that is a real fear for people. Of course that cannot override yeah. the very many strands of why exactly. we should have her back in yeah. the country and why it is our country's responsibility of her as a British citizen rather than just sort of leaving her for someone else to deal with or to send her back to Syria where God knows what will happen now that she's tried to denounce ISIS. Shamima is not going to be the last member of Islamic State wanting to return home and some of those people who want to come back to the UK will have committed far worse atrocities. As I saw someone write on Twitter... It was inevitable that one of the Bethnal Green girls would want to come home. Very sadly, the other two died. So she was the only one that has had the opportunity to do so. And as whoever it was, I can't remember. I think it was actually someone I don't follow. I was just looking at, you know, moments that were collated. Why haven't we spent four years since they left thinking about what would happen when they did? Why wasn't there some kind of plan or idea about what then happens with rehabilitation or security we need to set a precedent and we need to exercise what we consistently claim in comparison to Syria and other countries is a just and fair society and legal system I think due process closely monitored security psychological help and assessments and um, by all means keeping a very close eye on her I I don't think anyone's suggesting that we just you know, say, okay, go back home again. I mean, I'm not even sure what the relationship's like with her family. They certainly didn't know a huge amount about what had gone on in her life and what would happen with her from then on. I think if we abandon her or girls like this, we risk her returning to ISIS, fueling their propaganda, not to mention failing to support a teenage girl who made some appalling decisions, yes, perhaps with complete agency, but who, and we should not lose sight of this, ultimately chose to return to a democratic, humane society. Thank you so much for listening to the Hilo. You can rate, review, and subscribe. It helps other listeners find us and boosts us in the charts. You can email us thehiloshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at the Hilo Show. You can write to us, care of Grace O'Leary, independent talent, and we love getting your letters. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.